1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Multi-award-winning author Aminata Fauna on her latest novel, Happiness. Aminata Fauna is the author of the novels The Hired Man, The Memory of Love and Ancestor Stones and the memoir The Devil That Danced on the Water. Her books have won multiple prizes, including the Commonwealth Writers' Prize Book Award and has been shortlisted for many others, among them the Orange Prize for Fiction, the Neustadt Prize, the Samuel Johnson Prize and the Dublin International Impact Award. She's acted as a judge for a number of literary awards, including the International Man Booker and is currently Lanham Visiting Chair of Poetics at Georgetown University and Professor of Creative Writing at Bath Spa University. In 2017, she was awarded an OBE. And Aminata's latest novel is Happiness, which we're going to be talking about today. Aminata, thank you for joining us on Little Atoms.
3: Oh, that's my pleasure.
2: So how would you describe the novel?
3: (laughs) I would describe the novel in this way. An African psychiatrist, Attila, comes to London. He is here on professional business. He's here to give a keynote speech in his field, which is trauma, a war trauma. He knows London, it's a place he comes often and a place he enjoys. But a series of encounters and of events bring him into contact with another side of London, one with which neither he nor most of us are familiar. You could call it a hidden London. Uh, and he comes into contact with that London. It's the London of animals. It's the London of the service industry people, the street performers, but mainly the doorman, the dustmen, the traffic wardens uh, and people and animals that don't normally draw our eye or attention.
2: And you mentioned that Attila is a psychiatrist specialising in trauma. Trauma is something that you've written about throughout your career. Why is it a, an area that interests you?
3: I started becoming interested in trauma and trauma theory um, because of the civil conflict in Sierra Leone. And everything that I had read up to and beyond that point concentrated on the trauma of competence. But here was a country that I knew well, where not only were many civilians caught up in the, in the civil conflict and civilians were the greater victims of the atrocities that were committed, um, but also after a civil conflict, unlike after an international conflict, people are left with each other. Right, So in a way, the trauma is potentially, anyway, constantly self-reinforcing because you can't get away from the people, the circumstances, the situation. So, I mean, those were the questions I wanted to... Those were the things I was thinking about when I started to write. Actually, you know, oh, The Devil, The Dance on the Water. You know, I returned in the wake of war. That was a work of non-fiction. Ancestor Stones, one of the characters there, is suffering from trauma uh, that... Memory of love was explicitly about trauma. But I've always been much more interested in pursuing the line of trauma as it affects civilians and not so much competence just because not because I I, I diminish competence and their trauma, but because that's been investigated both in medicine and in and in literature so many times.
2: And so this is another book that explores aspects of trauma it's called happiness let's talk about why then
3: <laughs> well because the more I thought about trauma and engaged with it and uh, and spoke to people who worked in that sphere um I noticed something that struck me is two things that struck me is is interesting one was that people who had endured a potentially traumatic incident you know violence or danger actually were not unhappy <laughs> right that was the first thing Right, You know, there would be an immediate period where they would be maybe in a state of shock or, or whatever. There would be a reaction to it, that, and that might go on for a while. But actually, in the long term, they were not unhappy people, and they were actually uh, quite... I mean, I'd say they were happy people. Let me tell you a story, right, which, which, which brings it together. My cousin, who is called Molai, I grew up with him, I love him dearly. One day we were talking about his experience of the war, and he told me how he was nearly shot by a firing squad that when the rebel army invaded Freetown, he had been on the other side of town. So he tried to get... There's a sort of path through the hills which skirts Freetown. So he tried to get back to his family, thinking that the best thing, since so much of the fighting was taking place in the East End and his family was beyond it, he'd go round the back. So he did that, but he found himself with thousands of people all trying to do the same thing and roadblocks manned by Nigerian peacekeepers well, the Ecomog troops, and what was happening was that people who were thought to be rebels, because the rebels just looked like everybody else and they blended in, they had no uniform or anything, people who were suspected of being rebels were being pulled out of the crowd and taken aside and shot. And this is what happened to my cousin. He was pulled out of the crowd. He was accused of being a rebel, masquerading as a civilian, and he was taken and put in front of a firing squad. And he survived because one of the members of the firing squad was... A former pupil, he'd been a teacher. and The man stepped forward and the execution was stopped. And I thought about this, you know, the full horror of that story and what it must have felt like in that moment to know that you were going to die or to believe you were going to die. And then I said to my cousin, you must have been a good teacher. (laughs) <laughs> my cousin looked at me and he started laughing. He said, yeah, I was a good teacher. I said, yeah, better than a lot of mine because you might not have survived. <laughs> and um, we both began to laugh about it. And there was a Dutch man next to us and, and you could tell he was rather pulled by our reaction. That this was not something to laugh about. But... Uh, that is my family. That is the country. People have a, an ability to laugh at their own misfortune. And, you know, I thought about that for a long time. I, and I thought, how do you get from that experience to be able to laugh about it? You know, these are the things that stayed with me. These are the things that were turning over in my head. And I came across the work of a, another trauma specialist called Boris Cyrilnik, who himself... Um, he lost his parents to the death camps in the Second World War, survived on the streets of Paris, and then he became a psychologist specialising in the trauma of, of death camp survivors. And he began to notice, before me, you know, he noticed that these people were not the unhappy, broken souls that people imagined, that many of them went on to functioning. And you would say, you would describe lives that were happy. And so he wondered what this was. And he is one of the proponents, one of the early proponents of the theory of resilience. How do people survive things and He also, you knew that phrase. Whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Well, you know, I think that he's French, and maybe the phrase doesn't exist in France. But I, you know, if he heard it, he he would believe it.
2: Happiness is a is a book that's filled with many characters, and I'm going to say there are, and I'll elaborate on why as we go. But I'm going to say there are three main characters in the book, and we'll go through those. And you've already mentioned Attila, so we'll start with Attila. Now, Attila was also a minor character in The Memory of Love.
3: Yes. Why have you brought him back? Well, he never went away, I suppose. He just got a bigger stage. Attila stayed with me a long time after The Memory of Love because he embodied you know, this view that there was a difference in the way that trauma was seen by people close to it, by people who'd experienced it, by people who'd never experienced it, and also between the West and the rest, you know, that Westerners, and this is my experience as well, it mirrors my experience, Westerners simply can't believe that everybody in the rest of the world in these impoverished and challenging nations aren't just totally miserable. (laughs) And um, so that thinking began with Attila, and there's a point in the memory of love where he takes Adrian and he basically, you know, he he actually says to Adrian what you call trauma, we call reality, which is, you know, we don't all live in you know in cul-de-sacs with a golden Labrador. We actually get, we have to get on with something that's far more real than you do. You're actually living in a bubble, is what he's saying. To you're not living a real life. And actually, this, this was interpreted two different ways by my readers. Um, the Western readers took it literally that everybody was traumatised and the whole place was a hellhole. And the African readers, or the readers from developing countries, wherever they were, took it the other way around, which is, yeah, you know, shit happens and, and life goes on, you know, and, and, and there is a reality that you have to deal with. So, uh, you know, I was kind of fascinated by both those levels. First of all, the idea that people grew in the face of adversity and that you could, you were not necessarily unhappy but you could become happier and also this difference in the way that adversity was viewed by westerners and non-westerners so i actually tried him out in a couple of short stories i I wrote one called hayward heath that was shortlisted for the bbc short story award that one hayward heath told the story of, of a man called attila who came to britain and went to see a former love and discovered her to be suffering from Alzheimer's. And that character is Rosie, who also comes into happiness. And then I wrote another story called Scotch Broth about a man called Attila who has to... He is conducting a, a child from one place to another and the the child's mother is, for some reason, absent. I think she's actually committed suicide in the short story. But the child... Uh, Attila's taking care of the child and moving him from... taking him into care and at one point tries to make the child's favourite meal, which is scotch broth. So, I mean, th- those stories... Parts of those stories became parts of happiness, mm. not entirely. But, you know, I played around with the Attila a bit until I just decided, this man, I just have to spend more time with this character, and I really want to bring him to London and see what he makes of London.
2: And as you've, you've already sort of hinted at, the memory of love, the idea behind it was... Westerners going to Africa sort of being a bit out of place and seeing it through their own eyes and, and you've sort of reversed that idea here.
3: And... That's exactly I call it reversing the gaze because the, the gaze has always been a Western one. Western people pretty much own the gaze because Western people own so much <laughs> right? they own the media they own uh, you know most of the literature they produce most of the literature so I grew up reading books set not in Sierra Leone because Sierra Leone didn't apart from Graham Green draw anybody's eye but I guess, well, we may as well think about Graham Greene, yes. You know, I started reading books... When I started reading books about African, set in African countries, including Sierra Leone, I was always looking through the lens of the Western gaze. I was looking... In fact, I was looking through the eye of a white man, of Graham Greene. So... And, you know, this is something we're all painfully aware of, those of us who grew up in those worlds, that, that this is a view of us. It is not our view of ourselves. So I started playing with that in The Memory of Love. Adrian goes off to Sierra Leone. He thinks he's going to do all sorts of great things. He doesn't get it. And Adrian actually turned up in Ancestor Stones before. I mean, I don't mean to do this. It's just that characters stay with me. So he turned up, he comes to Sierra Leone. He wants to help. He's a good hearted person, but he's got a couple of problems. One is he is, um, he doesn't know the country, he doesn't understand the country, what the antecedents of the war are, right, and how that impacts on the present. And he also, because he is possessed of not a little Western arrogance, assumptions, let's put it that way, Western assumptions, he thinks the country is going to explain itself to him. He thinks that all, you know, everybody will account for themselves somehow and account for things, and they don't. Of course they don't. Why should they? And so he makes a, a good friend and Kai Mansouray, who's a, a Sierra surgeon, who does help him to understand the work of the country, but really by telling him that he has to do a bit more work mm-hmm. and, that, and that the country's not going to explain itself to him, and also a tiller, you know, in a minor way. So w- what I was doing with that was I sort of flipped it around in the book. You start really with mostly what Adrian sees, and then at some point I turn the camera around and you see what, Kai makes of Adrian, <laughs> right. uh, And so this is a sort of fuller turning of that idea that now I'm going to bring a character from that world and fully immerse them in this world.
2: And so at the point we meet Attila in this book it's 2014. He's in London. There are sections interspersed throughout the book that show the past of both Attila and Jean. And in fact, in one section, which we'll probably talk about later on, going right back to 1834... But um, they show Attila in various different conflict zones, dealing with the survivors of trauma in those conflict zones. At this point in time that we first meet him, he's also... Recently, been you know, his wife has recently died back in Accra
3: mm, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. ago, and um, and
2: he's in London. One of the things he's going to do while he's in London, as you've already alluded to, is he's, he's going to visit again Rosie, his first university love, mm. who's suffering with the um, you know, living with early onset Alzheimer's. Um, so he's, he's a man that's... I mean, again, you sort of encapsulate this idea about trauma that this is a man that's had a traumatic life but also has experienced trauma in his life, I mean, but is also now dealing with grief.
3: Well, Attila is what somebody in his profession or a therapist would call a fully integrated personality, if you see what I mean. So, I mean, well, in layman's terms, you'd say Attila is at one with himself. Mm-hmm. right? He's the kind of person who can handle, who understands, has the mental and emotional capacity to handle most things. But also, and the thing about Attila is that he accepts that things can make you feel bad, and there's not that much you can do about that, you know. He's grieving for his wife, and he's able to analyse his own feelings. At one point, it's magical thinking. He realises that he's indulging in magical thinking because she dies unexpectedly, and he keeps thinking, "What if? What if? What if? What if?" And he's able to analyse in himself, I, "I, I'm doing this," and he knows that the, he has no choice but to let grief, see it through until he sees it out. And I was very interested in choosing grief, because I think it's the emotion that, first of all, in the Western world, we're most familiar with, apart from love. We're familiar with losing people, the grief of loss. And also, but I think unlike love, it's the one we have the most trouble with. We have trouble with it in ourselves, we have trouble with it in other people. In Britain, we deal with death and loss Unbelievably badly. I mean, gobsmackingly badly. Um, you know, we don't properly comfort people who are grieving. We expect it to pass sooner, and grief is also one of the conditions that in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual um, produced by the, Institute, the World Institute, Institute of Psychiatry, is one of the ones that keeps being debated over. Is it a psychological condition that requires treatment or, as someone like Attila would argue, you know, it's a, an expected life experience and we cannot pathologize every single thing. And I think that the urge to pathologize grief comes in some way out of our reluctance to deal with it so like, well go to a therapist take some tablets and you'll be a lot better
0: life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh uh1.com
2: Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Aminata Fauna. We're talking about her latest novel, Happiness. And I'm conscious that Attila, who's, a, um, who's he's a big man and a bigger personality, we, mm-hmm. we let him dominate the, uh, the conversation. So let's move on to Jean for a mm. bit. So Jean Turan, she's a, an American, she's described as an urban wildlife biologist. Tell us yes. right what that is. Uh,
3: well, urban wildlife biology is a growing sphere everywhere, but particularly in America. And urban wildlife biologists research, Um, and write about animals in the city, essentially. And the reason that it's growing faster in America is because the proximity of animals and humans in America is so much greater. They have more wildlife, and therefore they have more wildlife in the cities, but they've also got great encroachment of suburbia on the places where those, um, for example, deer naturally inhabit. So there's a growing science in trying to figure out how to deal with this, trying to figure out how to handle the populations of animals and humans to, um, and what can and cannot be achieved. And so why is Jean in London? She's here to look at our foxes. (laughs) And anyone who knows London or who's visited... Oh, a city like Bristol has a huge fox population and Manchester has a good many. She's here to study our foxes. She's been brought in to do some consultancy because she's an expert in coyote, and coyote are the big predator. So in America you get deer, you get bears, you get uh, moose. But as far as predators are concerned... Uh, The predator most common and most present in American cities is the coyote. I worked with the wildlife biologists who helped me with the research for this, who told me that when you're in Chicago or Boston, you're never more than 200 yards away from a coyote. Only you don't know it. The coyote does, of course.
2: So she's here in London to study our foxes, but let's talk about why she's in London, why she's come from America to London. She's basically left her family back in Massachusetts.
3: That's right. She, um, for no dramatic reasons other than, you know, it's a marriage that ran out of love, really, Um, ran out of passion. She was married to a man called Ray. He restored vintage cars, classic cars and vintage cars, and... You know, he, she, he wanted more from her than she could give. She loved her job. She loved other aspects of life. He loved his cars, but you can only love a car so much. <laughs> she had a passion for what she did. So there was a mutual disappointment. It was one of those, you know, late middle age... Divorces, their son grows up. We've seen this happen a lot, haven't we? Uh, their son grows up, and they decide that they're better off apart. And so, Jean leaves and sees an opportunity, really, to uh, through uh, this consultancy to try on a different kind of life and to live in a city for once.
2: And <laughs> as I mentioned previously, the, the book has these vignettes set in the past, showing both the life of gene and attila but it begins with a scene back in 1834 That's right. of a man a wolfer who's basically hunting down what may be the last of the Massachusetts wolves there's a payoff later in the book when he makes a certain type of reappearance But the next time we see one of those vignettes, it's Jean, and obviously we're you know a a lot further forward. It's it's in in the early two thousands, let's say, and um, she's basically tracking coyotes, but of course for scientific research. The contrast of these two sort of scenes is introducing us to the theme in the book of of basically that conflict of human beings and nature encroaching on each other. Exactly.
3: Exactly. So the prologue really tells of the killing of the last wolf in Massachusetts. And you know, it's describing a period in time when humans were as we still are, determined to control the environment. We want the environment to bend its will to us. And I think nowhere epitomized that more than, than the American wilderness and frontier America, that push to the West, you know, not just taking lands from other people, but exterminating everything on those lands, everything that was a threat to man and his desires. And of course, the biggest threat was one of the biggest threats was wolves. And the the war on wolves was just extraordinary. I mean, Barry Lopez in of, Of Wolves and Men describes it. It was a a vicious genocide. It wasn't enough just to kill the wolves that were attacking sheep or lambs. It was just going out and finding every single wolf, and not just killing them, but killing them in horrible ways, and holding public executions. You know, holding wolves accountable for their own behaviour as animals, or or at least justifying the slaughter. So it starts off with this character, the wolfer, and he goes to a certain place. He plays up to the idea that he's you know the great saviour of humankind and cattle against the wolves. And he does kill probably one of the very last wolves in Massachusetts. And then we have, it also to me uh, was a way of thinking about how we how quixotic we are and how conflicted we are in our treatment of animals because of course what are wolves now you know they're sacrosanct we love them we're trying to save them we're trying to put them back the animal that takes the place of the wolf because of man's actions entirely because of man's actions is the next predator down and that's the coyote and the coyote moves into all the lands the wolves used to occupy because wolves are coyote killers too (laughs) like human but they kill for a reason over territory well, no, actually, if have come to think of it, it's exactly the same reason. But the wolves uh, wolves killed coyotes, right? They're the top of the food chain. So once you take the wolves out, in come the coyotes. And the coyotes now have moved all the way from the Great Plains in the, you know, to the west of the continent, all the way up north, and then all the way across and into New England, and, and actually right down to... The, the, there's been a sighted coyote in New York City. So it was the beginning of this game of consequences that we don't really seem to appreciate or take responsibility for.
2: The cover of the UK version, at least, of the book, has a, a picture of a parakeet on it. And yes. The book contains a, a segment where we, we see the, um, the attempted control of, of the, the roosts of parakeets that anybody that's familiar with South London will definitely be familiar with. The parakeet, of course, being, for want of a better word, an immigrant.
3: Mm-hmm. A non-native um, species. Yes.
2: <laughs> I said we were going to talk about a, a third character, and what I meant by that was basically London, the city of London. Yes. I feel it acts like a, another character. And particularly what I found great was your description of, as you described in the introduction, um, the sort of, like, you know, the, the hidden London, the connections and the sort of groupings that are, like, made essentially by transient people by immigrant communities doormen and security guards and street performers and things tell me something about that idea about those sort of like informal networks of connection
3: well where I live in south east London so this is all set around me it's, mm-hmm. it's an area and I, I know well and I did want to set the book in London anyway for reasons that Attila would be connected to London you know he would have studied in Britain he would be English speaking if he was and it would be a natural place for him to be and also because the book is about connections and consequences and you know, empire is the biggest single consequence probably until it's in London, you know, that Ghana and, and Britain have this have this relation lasting relationship. But the the groups of the, the connections that people make with each other, cities in a city you have side by side, the most powerful in the world and you also have the most disenfranchised. You know, people who have very few or no rights you have the wealthiest and the poorest and you also have animals and humans you know. and in, in many ways animals, the, the urban wildlife not only do they occupy the same they have no rights, animals have no rights in the city or anywhere else um, but they, they also produce the same conflict of responses <laughs> as say an immigrant or refugee population does they're demonised in the papers, the two groups, I mean, if you compare newspaper headlines they're demonised in exactly the same way, accused of crimes they probably haven't committed, or if they have, only one of them has, in, you know, enacted. Uh, it, it's a, well, it was kind of it's striking actually the way in which tabloid newspapers treat groups, whether they're animal or human, that they choose to, they want their readers to feel. Negatively and the language is the same. The language is exactly the same, yes. It's quite extraordinary, rather like with the wolves in, in uh, New England. So I was very interested in that. But in cities also, you have these disparate groups of people together that, But they're, they're at the, each end of the spectrum of rights or wealth or whatever. But you also have many people who come to the city are visitors. I mean, new arrivals. And they have very often left their blood families elsewhere. I mean, I'm a Londoner. London is one of those wonderful places like New York where you become, you you can become a Londoner. But I moved here when I was 18. It's not where I was born, it's not where my family is from. I, I stayed here because I came to university here and I stayed on. And when I look around my friends in London... I can only think of a very small number who were actually born in London, who are what you'd call, you know, original Londoners. The rest of us have all come here for different reasons, and we make connections among us. We're replacing family with different kinds of bonds. So they're much more, they're bonds of, what I call bonds of humanity rather than blood. People come together for different reasons. One of the reasons might be a shared connection to another part of the world. When I'm travelling around, I've just been on tour in America, And whenever I go to a city with a significant West African population, like, say, Atlanta, where I live, D.C., the people, the doorman, the person who brings my room service or cleans my room, you know, these people, the driver, the Uber driver, the taxi driver, very often West African. And as soon as they find out that I'm West African, they, you know, they, they... First of all, there's always a conversation, but beyond that, they'll extend to me a a special courtesy or kindness. They'll go a little extra step for me. There was a hotel in Atlanta that kept the restaurant open so I could get room service when I came back from giving my talk and actually I was when I was in DC not long ago And this is now my hometown as it happens but you know here's, here's the kind of thing that happens. I was out it was one o'clock in the morning I'd been out with a friend he hailed a taxi for me I got in and I said to the taxi driver I uh, gave him my address and he said I know where you live. He said you are Aminata from Sierra Leone with the Scottish mother I am Abu from Senegal does your husband know you're out with that man? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So, where I live in south-east London after the war in Sierra Leone, a good many Sierra Leoneans settled there and... and Sometime around the same time, Ghanaians and Nigerians, and a good few Brazilians as well. And because, you know, I, I went to live there because it was the only place I could afford a house. So that's why they all went there too. It was cheap. You know, it was the cheapest place in London at that time. So every new wave of immigrants or refugees goes to what where the cheapest places usually. So, you know, I, I found myself quite curiously surrounded by people, by languages, by, uh, you know, food and, and you know, various sites. Clothing and you know costumery that I was familiar with from another part of the world, so I when I was constructing first of all, I had to give Jean a research project you know, how to work it out. And actually I was helped in that by a wildlife biologist who uh, I said, look, you know, I'd read quite a few research projects and, and I realised that very often the scientists enrolled the local population, you know, in, in being there. You know those, you get them uh, counting songbirds and mm-hmm. things like that, yeah. you know, you, you count how many land in your garden and then you send the number. So very often they, they engage local people. So I thought, well, she doesn't really know anybody and who is there who's out all night, you know, because that's when foxes are around. And I thought, oh, you know, the traffic wardens weren't late, but dustmen are the ones who are most often out in the very early, very early part of the morning when you, you'd be likely to see foxes. So Jean's engaged them, and these happen to be the same... You know, Attila also engages the hotel doorman, and they're the same community. They all come from the same place, from broadly West Africa and so they come together to search for a boy who is uh, the son of one of Attila's family friends and this boy has gone missing, he's run away and so they all come together to look for him and that, that's where I thought, where would I look for help? That's where I would look for help.
2: Well, Before we give too much of the, the plot away, I'll say that's enough from me and if I could get you to read a little bit of the book. To okay. finish it off with.
3: Uh, so I'm going to read from the um, opening of the book, The First Time We Meet Attila in London. Chapter 1, London, 2nd February, 2014, evening. At that time of day, Waterloo Bridge is busy with shoppers and weekend workers who make their way on foot across the bridge to Waterloo Station. At that time of year, too, dusk comes early, by four in the afternoon. By five, it is dark. The fox wended its way through the pedestrians, who for the most part paid it no heed, for they would not so easily be distracted from their fixity of purpose. Through the slanting sleet, many people didn't see the fox. Those who did thought it was perhaps a loose dog. A few people had observed the fox on its journey. Upon the terrace of the National Theatre, a pair of smokers had spotted the fox watching them from behind the corner of a raised concrete flowerbed that was filled with dead lavender. The smokers and the fox looked at each other in stillness for several seconds. Then three things happened which caused the fox to bolt. A passing cruiser on the river gave a blast of its horn, which in turn caused one of the smokers to utter a high-pitched ooh of surprise. This startled the fox, which backed off and might have done little more than run down the stairs to the next level, had not, third, a plastic bag, dislodged from a tree branch by a sudden gust of wind, borne suddenly down upon the terrace. Moments before all this happened... Another smoker had emerged from the theatre lobby and now stood with the heavy door propped upon one shoulder for use as a windshield while she lit a cigarette. The fox, escaping the threat of the carrier bag, dashed through the open door and into the lobby where it joined the lava flow of departing theatre-goers. Down the stairs and through the crowd went the fox and as it went it brushed against calves and knees, causing people to hop, exclaim and search the floor through the thicket of legs for the cause. Down on the ground level, the fox skittered across the hard floor. A young man selling programmes for the evening show pointed and cried, There! in a kind of outrage to a pair of security guards who, with a jangle of keys, lumbered into life. The fox headed for the glass doors leading to the outside. Onlookers stopped to watch. Talk stalled to silence. Between the bank of glass doors and the concrete walls of the building, the fox had nowhere to go. On the other side of the glass, a man, painted top to toe in silver, carrying a silver cane and wearing a silver bowler hat, and who'd spent eight hours standing motionless upon a box in the freezing temperatures of the day, approached the building with no idea of the commotion unfolding beyond. Just as the fox reached the last in the row of doors, the silver man pulled it open. The fox ran out. The security guard skidded to a stop. One nearly fell over. The other uttered an exclamation in Yoruba. Both laughed and adjusted their peak caps. One clapped his companion upon the shoulder. Some people broke into a scattering of applause and the silver man took a bow. Outside, the smell in the air was of river water and traffic fumes. The fox ran up the stone steps to the bridge where it overtook a man carrying a bicycle. On the bridge, the people walked unswervingly, armed with bags defended by earphones, looking neither right nor left and acknowledging nothing and nobody those who did not walk with purpose, meandered in pairs, rocks around which the faster walkers flowed. Past a cameraman taking a time-lapse image of the river, the fox moving at a metronomic trot wove a line through them all. A man so tall he appeared to be wading through the crowd was crossing the bridge in the opposite direction to the fox. The man's name, the name his mother had given him as though she knew to what size her only son would one day grow, was Attila. In his pocket, Attila carried a theatre ticket. In addition, he held a reservation for one at a restaurant in the Aldwych. He'd chosen the theatre after reading the menu displayed outside the entrance, and now his reverie was of boiled beef, taffle spit and chopped chicken salad. Attila was newly arrived in the country by no more than a few hours and he relished for the moment the feel of wind and sleet on his face. He relished too the idea that soon he would sit alone in a dark place surrounded by strangers where nobody could find him. He moved slowly in the crowd, letting people pass. In the middle of the bridge, just beyond the cameraman standing with his camera on a tripod, Attila came to a stop and turned to admire the view The Houses of Parliament. Somebody ran into him. The collision left Attila unhurt, a testament to his scale and size. By contrast, the woman who had run into him was thrown to the ground, and Attila promptly bent to help her up. He apologized in sympathy, for obviously this could not be his fault. The woman accepted his hand, stood up, and brushed her backside. She wore jeans and a sweater and jacket, all in black. Attila retrieved a black day pack from the ground and held it out to her but she left it holding on to it for some moments while she retied her hair into its ponytail. As he waited, Attila noticed two things about the woman. First, that her hair was a rather remarkable pale silver and hung to the middle of her back, or would have done were she not already in the act of pushing it up inside a woollen hat. Secondly, that she was tall for a woman, she nearly reached his chin. The woman put her hand out so Attila might pass her bag, swung it on to her shoulder and said, I'm so sorry about that, do excuse me in a way that suggested no particular sorrow at all. Attila nodded. A moment later, he watched her walk away her long strides. He could still feel the force of their collision, the imprint of her body on his. So I've been talking
2: to Aminata Fauna. We've been talking about her latest novel, Happiness, which is out in the UK now from Bloomsbury. Aminata, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much.